so um, he's debated the uh, leadership. He's uh, offended. Many have been anointed uh, uh, by Mary and Bethany. And um, Judas has agreed to betray Jesus. Um, and uh, they begin this celebration of Passover as he sends uh, Peter and John out to find the man with the water picture, follow him to the house, make preparations. Verse 17 says, In the evening he came with the twelve. Now as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Um, you know, he's made public announcement about his coming death, even said that it would be by crucifixion. You know, well, I can generically say, Every one of us will die someday. Uh, that's an assurance. Jesus saying that he would be betrayed by a friend and that he's going to be crucified. Uh, public execution. You know, if someone was to tell you, I'm going to be, you know, an innocent man executed by lethal injection. That would stand out in your mind. And uh, this is what Jesus is saying to them. One of you is going to betray me. Now, I'm going to give you a number of parallel passages. Uh, that prophesy of things and that uh, other gospels give us greater insight. So to begin with, in Luke chapter 22, at verse 2, it says that the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. So they're, they're wanting to do it in a secretive, special way so that the mob doesn't take over and prevent it or even turn on them. So they've got to uh, you know, finagle this thing. And then Luke 22, verse 3 says, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. Uh, we hear three things about Judas in, in this particular regard. Twice we hear that Satan enters him. Once as he goes to betray then later we hear that Satan had put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. That's a frightening thought, that, that the demonic can influence our very thoughts. Okay. Now, I want to be clear. The scripture gives us no indication that they can actually read your thoughts, but uh, they are continuously in the background. They are manipulating our environment as much as they can. And keep in mind, the angelic forces are doing this also, leading us, not manipulating, leading us toward the Lord. And they watch our responses. So, you know, if they put a temptation in Judas's heart and, you know, it's just a thought whispered to the mind, but they see him begin to move toward, to to vocalize and say things they know I'm taking effect. I'm, I'm working what I desire in this one. So consider uh, the influences that affect your heart and mind. Uh, you know, Tom and I were talking last night and he mentioned again, you know, guarding your heart because it's the wellspring of life. The things you put into your heart, the television, the internet, radio, the, the the issues of life spring forth from your heart. If you've polluted the well, then all that can come out is right. What it was IBM in the beginning, 
that coined the phrase garbage in, garbage out. Okay? You know, you, you can have the most brilliant machine ever created by men. If you program it with junk, all it's going to come out is junk. So it is with a human being. You know, he's subjecting himself uh, to these things. You know, as far as our responsibility, right? Because there is within the world this attitude, well, the devil made me do it, right? Some of us remember Flip Wilson. Remember that whole routine he used to do? The devil made me do it. Uh, so some of you are like, Flip Wilson? <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> Flip was funny. Um, the devil made me do it. The, the world likes to blame shift. We like to blame shift. We don't want to take responsibility for ourselves. And there's a movement to make it not your fault. You know, it's not, it's, it's not actually, you know, uh, addiction or a sin. It's, it's a disease. You know, it's, it's some other buddy's responsibility. You know, it's, it's in my genetics. It's not my promise. The devil made me do it. As I said, uh, you might want to write down Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Because Cain is about to kill his brother Abel, and the Lord actually comes to him and said to Cain, Genesis 4, verse 6, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this, Sin lies at the door. Literally, in the Hebrew language, it crouches at the door like a lion or a tiger. Sin crouches at the door, and its desire is for you. Not for pleasant things, right? I mean, if a tiger is crouched at the door, it, it, that's not like a pleasant kitty. You know what I'm saying? It's there to kill you. It's there to eat you. Uh, sin is at the door. It's desires for you. But notice this. But you should rule over it. God the Father saying, you have the capacity, especially with my strength in you, the power of the Holy Spirit, you have the capacity to resist and to conquer. We, we, we are constantly being preached to that you're powerless. There's nothing you can do. Well, right, if you don't resist. You know, years ago, uh, there were four brothers uh, uh, from Calvary Chapel. We were all working together. And uh, one of the brothers uh, came to us and said, Man, I, you guys, I just, you know, I'm new to this whole Christian faith. I really need you to pray for me. I just being really tempted to, uh, you know, uh, fall back into smoking cigarettes. And uh, uh, so we prayed for him, and, uh, and he'd come the next day and he'd be like, man, i just really struggling. I, I, you know, I smoked a whole bunch yesterday, and I, you know, I just I want to kick this habit. I don't want anything to do with it. I need to be delivered from it. And uh, we prayed for him again. This went on for a few days. And uh, so then I show up one morning, and one of the brothers greets me, uh, all excited. He's like, good news. And I'm like, you know, what's going on? He's like, brother, so-and-so is no longer battling cigarettes. And I'm like, awesome, man. And he says, look. And there he is standing on the loading dock, just, you know, <laughs> smoking away. <sighs> he, he's just given up, right? And, and we do that. We do that, and 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 I don't mean to make light of that at all, right? I mean, you know, if any of us smokes, I'm not I'm not beating that up. I'm just saying that 
It negotiates with our heart, and it pleads with us, you know, and it tries to find a way to convince us that, you know, whatever. And I'm just talking generically about sin. You know, you need to conquer the thing. You need the strength of Christ. If you recognize how wicked it is, look, if the devil's talking to your mind, you need help. And no psychologist is going to do it for you. And no pastor or priest is going to do it for you. You need Jesus Christ. You need Jesus Christ to deliver you from such a voice. And here, uh, Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered with the twelve. So he went his way, conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. Romans chapter 6, verse 16 says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slave? whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Whatever you're obedient to, that's your master. That's what masters you. Oh, darn, right? Because I have obeyed some of the lamest things. <laughs> you know, I wish that it was some colossal, gigantic thing, and instead, you know, pettiness, selfishness. You know, how cheap is pride? You just can't let somebody slight you. You gotta you gotta you know you gotta bloody them in return. You gotta say something uh, that you know cuts them down. Can't ju you can't just be thrown under the bus like that. Gotta gotta lash back. Uh, consider there are bigger issues, right? And that's where we're at is Jesus' betrayal, verse 19 of Mark chapter 14, they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? Right? Now, it's interesting, right, because all of the apostles record that their response is, is it I, Master? Is it I, Master, Lord, Kyriosk? They bow to his authority. And they're heartbroken at the thought, right? Judas alone answers, is it I, teacher? So interesting, right? He doesn't respect Jesus as Lord. He simply respects him as teacher. And in fact, from this point forward, all through the Gospels, Judas only refers to Jesus as teacher. Think about how the world speaks of Jesus, right? Oh, he's a good teacher. Yeah, but he's not your master. He's not your Lord. You have not submitted to his authority. And that's the way of the world. Oh, I respect Jesus. He was a good teacher. No, you don't. You don't respect him for his you know, omniscient position of God. You don't, you don't have the proper respect. Foreign. They all began to say, is it I? Uh, verse 20, he answered and said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the dish. Okay? His hand is in the dish. The way, the way it's written, <laughs> the way it's written in the original language, we get from another gospel that he dips and gives it to Judas. Okay, and Judas receives it and asks there, is it I? And he says, it is as you said. 
but uh, the way it's written would seemingly be interpreted as they had their hand in the dish at the same time. It's the one. It's the one whose hand is in the dish with mine right now. Right. There are a couple moments like this during this betrayal that take place where the, you know how how harsh would eye contact be in that moment? You know, as you're you're self-absorbed, right? You're trying. You've already betrayed Jesus. You've made the agreement to betray Jesus. And your hands in the dish. What you're you're trying to just not make eye contact right now. You know what I'm saying? You just everybody else is going as I. You're thinking I should just get something. <laughs> hands in the dish, and Jesus is saying, "My hands in the dish with the man." You know, you're all oh darn. You know, just yanking back. I I wish I could say I don't know what that feels like. A hand in the cookie jar, right? You know, your your flesh has taken over. It's so interesting to me, these obscure prophecies. Psalm chapter 41, verse 7. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. How remarkable a statement is that by the psalmist. How about Psalm 55, beginning at verse 12? For is it not an enemy who reproaches me? Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, my acquaintance, we took sweet counsel together and walked through the house of God in the throng. Remarkable. He sent Judas out with the 72 to minister on his behalf. Seemingly Judas uh, was healing people and, and, and casting out demons and, and preaching the gospel. And now betrays Jesus. Back in Mark 14, looking at verse 21. Jesus continues, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it was written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be good for that man if he had never been born. Listen, <clears throat> there's a false uh, doctrine uh, that reaches its tentacles into Christianity in a few different ways. Right? One of the ways is through Calvinism. And it says that if you're wicked, and I'll just use that in a broad, general sense, uh, that you are so because God intended you to be that way. There's nothing that you can do about that, right? Uh, if you're good, if you're the elect, if you're one of the chosen, uh, then you are so because there's nothing you can do about it. God created you that way. You're powerless to, to be anything other than what God created you to be. Well, Look, I understand the sovereignty of God and the scriptures teaching on that. We've talked about Calvinism versus Armenianism many times in these studies. Okay? The scripture is very clear about God's sovereignty, but he's also very clear about your choice. You have, to, you have to choose to do what's right. And you can choose even when the temptation within you is to do wrong. Uh, there is a false teaching that Judas was actually in cahoots with 
Jesus to have this crucifixion take place. Um, the most popularized end of that teaching was the Da Vinci Code, okay, which which said that um, uh, Judas and Jesus planned this together and that it was fake. Jesus was never actually killed, that it was another uh, prisoner who was going to be executed, that they tortured mercilessly so you couldn't even tell whether it was Jesus or not, and then they crucified him and Jesus secretly ran off married Mary Magdalene and had children and that all of their children are the royal family of all the European countries okay the French and Germans and uh, which actually is part of the mindset behind uh, the Aryan race of the Germans so it, it gets really weird and you know the lost tribe of Dan that's where the the Danish come from you know the Danish you know it's it's weird it's really weird um, all of that finds its core teaching in a non-Christian belief system known as Gnosticism. Well, uh, Gnosticism didn't even really take off. Uh, there were fringe elements of it developing uh, within a hundred years of Jesus' life, but it didn't take off for another more than 200 years. Okay, And this teaching about Judas actually emerged 350 years after Jesus in Nag Hammadi, Egypt. So not even on the same continent. Uh, they have uh, this parchment that was found that they've uh, labeled uh, the Gospel of Judas. right? And, and I balk at that title because Gospel means good news. <laughs> you know, what good news does Judas have along the way? So, so the concept is that Judas was his closest friend and his confidant and that he wanted to escape the ministry and uh, his way out was through this feigned execution and so uh, they hatched this plan. Nonsense, okay? And I, I always use the example, all right, it, it hasn't even been 350 years since George Washington, okay? Uh, now, who are we going to trust and listen to as far as an accurate understanding of George Washington's behavior and his character, uh, someone that wrote in his day, someone that was working with him, served with him, or are we going to listen to some doubter who does not even believe uh, the things that we know about George Washington who writes 350 years later? Clearly, you're going to trust the firsthand information, along with the fact that the people who gave that information paid for that information with their lives, every single one of them, right? And, and some say, well, John the Baptist survived. I don't know how you classify that. They did boil the man in oil, okay? In his 90s, they exiled him to the island of Patmos, which was a death camp where they worked people to death. He survived both things, but he was so crippled by the whole experience that in the end he could not walk at all. They carried him in a chair, and they would pick him out of the chair, by description, probably less than 100 pounds, and lay him in his bed and then pick him up and set him back in his chair. Uh, they paid for it dearly. Yeah, anywhere along the way, they could have said it was a joke. 
<laughs> we made it up. It wasn't real. And instead, you know, skinned alive. Dragged to death behind chariots. Run through repeatedly with Halliburton. Burned alive at the stake. You know, torturous deaths. They could have confessed anywhere along the way and avoided such horror. Instead, they longed for whatever was going to be delivered to them because they had seen Jesus resurrected. And they knew he was promising them the same. So whatever amount of suffering they were going to go through was worth making sure, listen, that you got the message intact. Right? They're going to step over the threshold in the presence of God. However, they go out. But they wanted to make sure you understood the integrity of the message. They had paid for it with their lives. Jesus saying here, he's a betrayer. And it would be better if he had never been born. Why? Because there's hell to pay. If you've never come into existence then you don't have to suffer the consequences of judgment. If you've come into existence and you've betrayed the Christ, you know, and thereby betrayed your own soul, you've got eternity to pay for that. That's a horrible thought. Verse 22, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. And we talked about this uh, because of communion last week, uh, the, the physical body, the Gnostics, <clears throat> by the time John writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, they've really begun to develop a number of weird teachings about Jesus. <clears throat> the strongest point they said, they, they had this concept that they then had to use to explain Jesus away, that said everything that is of the flesh is evil. Everything that is of the spirit and that which is spiritual is good. And they began to pollute Christianity with this thought process. And this is where people were saying, well, yeah, sure, I hired a prostitute, but that was just my body. In my mind and in my heart and in my spirit, I worship Christ. And Paul has to correct that false teaching and say, no, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And if you defile the temple, then you have eternity to pay in the process of that whole thing. John, in 1 John, says, you know, we're here to tell you about the things. I'm writing to tell you about the things which our eyes have seen, our hands have handled. Right? Because the Gnostics are saying, well, right, because uh, anything of the flesh is evil, and Jesus was clearly not evil, so he couldn't have been in the flesh. So Jesus was a ghost. Yeah, that's it. Jesus was a ghost. He was a phantom. He was never actually physical. And then they're making up stories about how, uh, you know, there were recorded accounts where Jesus was walking on the beach and the disciples noticed he wasn't leaving any footprints. You know, and they looked back years later and realized uh, that he, he had uh, never eaten in their presence, you know. Uh, so, so John and, and Luke both record several occasions where Jesus eats, and they even record several occasions where he eats after his resurrection, right? Yeah. Honeycomb, broiled fish. What did he say to Thomas, right? He didn't say, I'm a phantom. He said, do you need to put your fingers in my wounds? I'm, I'm flesh now, even in my resurrection. 
is what he was saying. I'm not a ghost. I'm not an apparition. I'm alive. I've been raised from the dead. His body, right? Take, eat this in my body, physical body. Fulfilling, fulfilling so many prophecies from the Old Testament that predicted his coming, right? I'll give you Dr. Peter Stoner's uh, analysis one more time. So he, he was doing this in the late 50s, but he did the calculation of the odds. And, and people don't consider that, like how real statistics are. You know, I mean, uh, if, if the odds that you're going to win the lottery are one in 600 million, right? Then you know there's 310 million, 320 million, depending on who's people in the United States. It's it's a concept beyond understanding. Uh, Peter Stoner said if if Jesus Christ is going to fulfill, and this is a mathematician who handles real statistics, looked at the entirety of the human population and the odds that Jesus Christ would fulfill just eight prophecies, just eight. Right? Undeniable prophecies, because there are some that you might not agree were possible. Right? Jesus was a real person. So if you uh, if you assume that, right, <clears throat> real person born in Bethlehem. So so take born in Bethlehem the first thing. Uh, then right, he moved from Bethlehem historically. We know from Bethlehem to Egypt. Right. Then he also came back and lived in Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. Right. He was betrayed. So you can you can take betrayed. Not many people are betrayed to death, right? Now betrayed to death by a friend. Okay, some people get betrayed to death, but not by a friend. Betrayed to death by a friend for thirty pieces of silver. Okay, uh, um, you know, taken to whatever ones you want to, just eight that are undeniable about Jesus. Uh, that he was both scourged and crucified, right? Because some people got scourged. Others got crucified. The number of people that got scourged and crucified is incredibly low in all of history. Combine, you have to combine the other things. Born in Nazareth, moved to Egypt, came back. Or born in Bethlehem, moved to Egypt, came back to Nazareth. You have to combine those with uh, scourged and uh, crucified under Pontius Pilate, right? Because that puts you in a very specific place in time. The odds that Jesus would fulfill eight prophecies in history as he did, are 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Right? 1 in 10. That's, you know, you lay out 10 cards and say, only one of these is the Joker. Choose the Joker. Your odds are pretty low. Right? That you're going to choose the Joker. If, if, we, if we sit down and we go 1 in 10, but then behind that... We multiply, right? We multiply that by 17. Now, spread out that many cards. Here, 1 in 10, the 17th power. Now, you've got to choose the Joker the first time. You wouldn't even try, right? You know, whatever amount of money you're going to put down, you're going to lose. It's absolutely impossible. You go, well, yeah, I get that. No, you don't. <clears throat> because then Peter Stoner puts it into a tangible thing you can understand. 1 in 10 to the 17th power, 
<clears throat> you take the state of Texas, its square footage, bury it in quarters two feet deep. Take one quarter, paint it red on both sides. Fly over Texas, wherever you decide, throw the quarter out and let it land in Texas, wherever it's going to land. No, 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 no. You then have to shuffle the entire state so that it gets randomized. It cannot lie just on the top. It must be randomized into the two feet of quarters somewhere. Then you have to blindfold someone with no time constraint and tell them to walk whatever distance they want to, no predetermined distance, randomly stop without any sight, vision, knowledge, understanding. They know they're on quarters. Stop wherever they want to, bend over, pick up one quarter, they'll have the red quarter in their hand. That's one in 10 to the 17th power. That's eight prophecies. There are more than 350 prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. No? Okay, let's go a different direction. This one in 10 to the 17th power, eight possible things, right? I've done this before with us all. How many people in this room were born in Bangor, Maine? Born in Bangor. Okay, great. Okay, now how many people born in Bangor lived on 16th Street? Done, right? Statistics over. So born in Bangor. Lived on 16th Street. Moved from 16th Street in Bangor to Kenduskate. No, nobody. Moved to Newport. No, nobody. Moved from uh, Newport to Heartland. No, nobody. Moved from Heartland to Orrington. Nobody. Moved from Orrington to Lemoyne. Any takers? No. From Lemoyne to Trenton. No? Okay. My daughter, Abigail, has experienced all of those things. Okay. The odds, you, you understand the odds. I mean, imagine having a conversation with somebody. I was born in Bangor. Oh, I was born in Bangor, too. I mean, okay, how many, how about like this, right? How many of you have, were born in Maine? Right? So, so a number more of us. But out of that, only a couple born in Bangor. So you see how the statistics, just in a room this big, they drop right off. When Peter Stoner did that, if you think that that's a Christian man doing that calculation and that he, he slanted it, his peers reviewed his work and study. He won the Nobel Prize in mathematics that year for those calculations. That's, that's, not, that's not something that we you know, tout and promote. Just, just so that we gain understanding. What, when we're reading that, you know, he, he came in the flesh, Jesus' body, he came physically. Those prophecies begin almost immediately after creation is started. That Jesus Christ is going to come. That the seed, right, will be at war, at enmity with the serpent. And, and that the serpent will bruise his heel at the cross while the Savior crushes the head of the serpent. Was the head of the serpent, the venom, the fangs, sin and death, right, are in the mouth of the serpent. The words that came out of the serpent's mouth poisoned 
the heart of Eve to disobey the Lord. New Testament tells us that the Lord will deliver believers from the mouths of false teachers. Okay? The venom, his word delivers us from the venom. His body was going to come. When he says, this is my body, there's so much to him standing there in the flesh, having fulfilled all that he did in the Old Testament, to come and hold that bread in his hand and say, this is my body, right? And do this in remembrance of me until I come. Well, look at the news right now and understand where we are as far as these things being fulfilled. Look at what's happening. Everybody's all wound up and worried about Ukraine right now. Honestly, whatever kicks off there, uh, what you need to be more concerned about is the, the overarching reaction that may occur to cause Vladimir to come against Israel. Okay, And what's happening in Turkey and the things that are developing in the Middle East and the Muslim nations that have hated Israel and wanted to destroy it for, well, you know, thousands of years. Those are the things to pay attention to and what's developing right now. Our redemption draws nigh. Uh, the body of Jesus Christ. Take, this is my body. What a remarkable thing in all of history to have the Messiah there. Verse 23, then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. They all drank from it and he said to them, this is my blood, the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Um, I have a, you know, a, uh, a confessed um, prejudice regarding drugs and alcohol. You know, I, I, I'm always going to lean towards a, an abstinence message. Um, you know, a lot of Christians want to you know, ask me, you know, can I be a Christian and still, you know, have a glass of wine? Can I, okay, well, have that discussion. But there are some things to think about that uh, if you're a serious student of the scripture, that, you know, often uh, they'll bring up, well, Jesus drank wine, right? And I'm going to, you know what? I'm going to drink wine just like Jesus did. Because right here he said, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Abstinence is my approach. And, you know, when I'm in the presence of the Lord, seated at the banquet table, whatever he puts in my hand, that's what I'll drink. Okay. Commonly, people will say things to me, well, like, yeah, but like Noah drank. I'm glad you brought it up. Right? Any of us that know what happened with Noah, you guarantee he would like to erase that chapter from his life as he passed out drunk, naked, and then his children mocked him as a result of it. Okay? Now, there's also a possibility. This is Will Cass speculation right here. So don't like... Include this in your Bible as though it were the word of God. But there is some speculation that decomposition was dramatically increased after the flood. Okay? Lifespan was dramatically slashed after the flood. They lived to be, right, 
Noah's, have I said Moses three times? Noah, okay. Noah's um, uh, grandfather, uh, Methuselah, uh, 969 years old. Okay. Immediately after the flood, God says it very specifically. He's going to shorten the days of humanity to 120 years. That's the maximum. And it's still there. Right? There are a few rare people that live to be 120 years old. A couple of the people that have claimed it, they've gone back and done the research and they were just barely over 90. So uh, you want to be careful about you know certain people who have claimed to be 115 years old. They find out later... Maybe they were senile and didn't know. You know what I'm saying? Just lost, lost track somewhere. Right? You've done it, maybe, right? I'm 57, and your friend says you're 59. You know, I just, you know. So consider, consider uh, longevity dramatically reduced. Right? What causes uh, uh, decomposition? Entropy. Right? Things are breaking down. Human race is breaking down. Dramatic decrease, size, stature, age, longevity after the flood. There's a huge slash. There's some speculation that uh, maybe Noah didn't realize he was going to get drunk. Made grape juice. Prior to the flood, you could leave it around for weeks. After the flood, it ferments really rapidly. Drink big amounts like you did prior to the flood, after the flood, knocks you out cold. Possible. Possible. I think we can safely say it's not an example we want to point at and claim as our own. Right? Uh, well, Jesus turned water into wine. Okay, well, let's have that discussion. The table wine of the day was made from 50% water, 50% fermented grape juice. And I, I do mean fermented, not distilled, just fermented, right? If you wanted to make stronger wine, you might add some sugars to it, and that causes it to kick off a little quicker. But it's still just fermented, just like the orange juice you left in the back of the fridge. Didn't know it was there, hauled it out, big glass, take the drink, and it's orange juice vinegar. Really unpleasant. You don't want anything to do with it. That's the type of wine we're talking about. It's just fermented grape juice. Then mix it 50-50 with water. Okay, New wine, when they say new wine in the New Testament, you're talking about grape juice. New wine is what was just pressed. Right? The master of the feast says normally, right, they bring out the new wine. And when everybody's drank a lot of that, then they bring out the old wine, right? You know, get the leftovers. I think there's some in the back of the fridge, right? Because it's less pleasant. Drunkenness is forbidden in the scripture. Drunkenness is forbidden by the Lord. Drunkenness was not part of the Jewish culture. So, so this whole concept of Jesus drank wine, yeah, well, if you were only drinking wine like Jesus did, then we really wouldn't have to worry about whether you're going to destroy your family or not, right? Lose your job, wreck your car, cause mayhem. Uh, I've chosen what Jesus is saying right here. Leave it alone, complete, all of it. Intoxication doesn't belong to me. Soberness of mind, clarity of thought. 
in order to deliver the gospel message. I'm confident that when I stand in his presence, the joy that I experience from simply being there is going to eclipse whatever intoxication the world has to offer. It's important that we understand what the Lord is calling us to. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools. I'm taking this from the New Living Translation. But like those who are wise, make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Rather than being emptied out, as this passage says in the King James Version, dissipation. Be filled. How many times for those of us that used to be intoxicated did we turn around and go like, where did all my money go? Like, where, where am I? I just got how? Where are my resources? What happened? You know, dissipating, coming to nothing, versus being filled up, growing up, being edified, becoming wiser. You know what the number one side effect of all intoxication is? All of it, no matter what source you're using, it's forgetfulness, brain loss, memory loss. Doesn't matter if it's a stimulant or a depressant, right? Loss of brain capacity, right? I, I don't, I, I don't need any more things interfering with my brain's function. I, I have enough of those things happening every day. Verse 26, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, we know the hymns that were sung for the Passover, the Hallel Psalms, and they speak very clearly of the sacrifice that is to be made. So remarkable to think about, number one, Jesus singing. That must have been a very pleasant experience to be with Jesus and hear him sing. Uh, secondly, to hear him sing uh, of the foreshadowing of his own death. How remarkable. Read uh, Psalm 116 through Psalm 119 and see those hymns that are there. Uh, went out to the Mount of Olives from where they were. They had to cross the Kidron Valley. The, the word Kidron means black in the Hebrew language, and they had named it the Kidron Valley because... At Passover, the, the I was going to say river, but the stream that runs through it would run black because of the blood of the sacrifices. So as Jesus leaves, he's, he's crossing over essentially a stream of blood that is, that is uh, from the sacrifices, which again foreshadow his death. Remarkable uh, thing to consider all of this. Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This still goes on, right? Um, you know, there was the shepherding movement of uh, prominently the 80s, which was really messed up in Christianity. There are still people that speak affectionately of it, but uh, it's essentially a weird sort of priesthood. There were people who claimed the position of shepherd and then others who were assigned the position of shepherd and then people had to submit to them. And it was about everything. 
You know, you couldn't do anything without your shepherd's permission. You know, sometimes it was the pastor. Other times it was just there were shepherds in the congregation. And they would assign people under them. You know, you want to get married? Oh, you got to ask your shepherd. You want to buy a car? Oh, you got to ask your shepherd. You want a ham sandwich? You probably ought to ask your shepherd. You know what I'm saying? It was weird. And I mean it. It was controlling to that degree. Some uh, far less. Others more dominant. It was very strange. It was very unhealthy. Okay. The term pastor, that's the only one that I am not bugged by as far as somebody saying pastor will. Okay. Uh, the term uh, means feeder. You can hear the word pasture in it. Okay. Uh, Jesus said, call no man on earth your spiritual father. He even went as far as to say, call no man on earth your teacher, for you have one teacher, which is the Christ. Okay. Uh, the Lord himself said to Peter when he restored him, feed my sheep. You know, shepherd the flock of God. Uh, then later uh, we hear Peter say, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. You know, so this idea of being a shepherd within the body of Christ is something that the scripture encourages for leaders. It's not the idea of lordship and domination as much as it is that, that concept of feeding. Just, you know, prepare the word of God and deliver it to the flock that they could uh, eat of it and be healthy and, and consume it is, is the concept. Uh, striking of the shepherd. Jesus obviously is the chief shepherd and the one that we're talking about here. But the enemy still attacks shepherds. And uh, we need to pray for our shepherds. Uh, that the Lord would protect them and preserve them. Um, you know, Paul writes, uh, the young pastors that he's training up, and he says, do not entertain a don't Do not even entertain a reviling accusation against an elder, a pastor unless it be that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, right? And that, and that is collectively. If three people are going to come and say, this pastor, uh, you know, stole all the money, then you need to look into that, okay? But people say things about pastors. Um, I, uh, I have heard wild stories about my pastor that are absolutely untrue. People sometimes don't know that he's my pastor. So, you know, something gets brought up, Calvary Chapel, and oh, Calvary Chapel, Bangor, and whoosh, they launch. Lori and I um, were putting a bid in on a job. We had a cleaning company years ago, and we went uh, to measure up and, and do an estimate. And uh, the gentleman that owned the business, I don't remember how it was brought up, but something was said about Calvary Chapel, Bangor. And apparently he didn't make the connection that, you know, we attend there. And, and he launched uh, into the wildest stuff, completely untrue. And I egged him on. Egged him on, literally like, no kidding. And what else? <laughs> oh, and he spun a yarn. Uh, am I exaggerating, Lori? No, I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. I mean, I just let him go. And then when he got all done, I said, ah, I just, uh, I just want to explain to you how you're wrong. 
and I took him back. I, he started in my pastor's youth, literally with the stories and the things that he was telling, all lies, all completely wrong. And I just said, let me, let me explain to you where you're wrong and why you're wrong. You know, that guy was a total drunk, and he was in trouble with the law, and he was going, and not, not true at all, none of it. You know, 13, accepted Christ, 16 years old, took his GED test and went to Teen Challenge to be part of that ministry to learn, learn how to disciple drunks and alcoholics and, and addicts because he had grown up in a home that was that way. He, he had never struggled with that himself. He wanted to help people who struggled with it so they didn't grow up to be like the household he had been raised in. And this guy, you wouldn't believe the stories that just, he went on and on and on about. I've been told wild stories about myself when people didn't realize I was the pastor of this church. And I did the same thing there too. Really? No, tell me more. <laughs> and then when I tell them I'm the pastor and the ground opens up and they just fall, you know what I'm or that's what they're wishing would happen. People will tell stories and attack shepherds and say the most deranged stuff that's completely untrue. Had two women walk in here years ago. And uh, after they'd been here for a moment, I introduced myself. Hi, I'm talking to them. And uh, they're like, yeah, well, we wanted to meet the pastor. And I'm now I'm feeling kind of silly. I'm like, oh, well. I'm the pastor. And they're like, no, no, the senior pastor. And I'm like, well, okay, uh, now I feel even better about myself. I'm the senior pastor. No, we met the senior pastor downtown yesterday. What? Oh, you're looking for a different church. No, no, uh, we wanted to talk to the senior pastor because he invited us to this church yesterday. Well, it turns out the guy they're talking about had created massive trouble here. And I was in the midst of correcting him and disciplining him and dealing with him. And he's out in public telling people he's the senior pastor of this church as he's behaving like that. Right? And I thought, well, that was really weird. It was even stranger when the following Sunday another couple showed up and did the same thing. Used his name, told me where they spoke to him, gave me his description. Astonishing. Strike the shepherd, the flock scatters. Here, this is this is a you know obvious thing referring to the Christ, referring to Jesus, uh, but understand that it still goes on. And as the flock, right, we don't want to be scattered. We do not want to be scattered. It's We have safety. Have you watched the nature programs? And the way that the predators stalk the herd, and when they run at the herd, what are they looking for? The weak. The weak. The young and the sick who peel away from the herd. That's who they go after. And that's exactly what goes on in the body of Christ. They don't, sometimes they don't even have a target. Just run at the herd, make the flock scatter, and then go after 
as everybody's peeling off. Scatter the whole group. Stay with the flock. That's the answer. Stay with the flock. Oh, the pastor was a complete, complete flake, and you know it all fell apart. Stay with the flock, and let the heavenly shepherd transport you from the flock you're presently in to the flock you're supposed to transfer to, because our safety is found in the flock. Out on our own, you'll you'll realize that that crushing sound is a set of jaws on your neck spiritually as your spiritual life is being choked out. Stay in the body of Christ. Abide. Let the Lord deliver you. It's the same perspective that he's always had. Strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. They were reminded of this again by an angel and they all collected together, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. The 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. What mountain was that? We don't know. Uh, but they were accustomed to going there. And Jesus had commanded them, so they, they remember that and go. Verse 29, Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Um. You remember, uh, you know, James and John not too long ago were saying, when you come into your kingdom, uh, we would like the number one and the number two positions of power and authority in your administration. Could we have the right and the left seat on your throne when you're crowned king? Uh, you know, when it says there that all the other disciples were angry with them, I know that it wasn't the other disciples thinking, those guys are so spiritually immature, I cannot believe they said that. I guarantee you what it was, was why didn't I think of that? Oh, now I'm going to have to sound like an idiot when I ask. Oh. Hey, about that left and right seat, do you suppose there are other seats just left of that or right of that that maybe, you know, this is how these guys were. You can guarantee that this is Peter's power play right here. How would you like it if somebody stood up here, if I stood up here and said, all of you will betray me this night, and Shane leaps to his feet and yells, everyone else in this room will betray you, but I will not. <laughs> right? Um, you're going to feel like a doofus and Shane's going to look arrogant. That's exactly what Peter just did. Oh, I can see everybody else here <laughs> failing you. Not me. That's, that's my sort of line, you know, hoof and mouth disease, you know, <laughs> open foot, open mouth, chew vigorously. He's foolish. Ridiculous the way that they react here. Proverbs 16.8 actually says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We often say pride goeth before a fall. And it's, pride comes before destruction. Peter's 
moments away, right? Moments away from the full crash and burn. It's pretty amazing to witness. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. It's interesting. According to the Mishnah, Baba Kama 7, if you were wondering, states poultry was forbidden in Jerusalem on account of the holy things or on account of the sanctuary. It specifically details saying no cock or hens may be raised in Jerusalem, even by laymen, because of the voluntary offerings, the meat of which may be eaten in any part of the city and as a habit of the named fowls is to peck with their beaks in the rubbish they may peck into a dead reptile and then peck in the meat of offering and all other parts of Jerusalem priests may also not raise them as they use uh, level offerings for their meals and they must be careful about cleanliness. Very wordy. No chickens, male or female, allowed in Jerusalem under any conditions. And yet a rooster crows. Just some Rambo rooster has snuck his way in and taken up his stealthful position to wait. You know, is there some angel that's got this thing right by the neck? You know what I'm saying? And when the moment comes, just, you know... (laughs) (laughs) you know or is it got like an incredibly loud voice and it's outside the city you'd have you'd have to have a really loud rooster to be outside even the old city to be outside the old city and hear it inside the city to hear the rooster this again when god says a thing is going to be that way it's going to be that way You can try to oppose it all you want. Verse 31, he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. They all said likewise. Do you see the three stooges routine in your mind? Yeah, us too. You know what I'm saying? Just everybody pipes in. Moments ago, they're all saying, am I the one that's going to deny you? But now they're all adamantly saying, no. We'll go down in flames. So funny, the human character and and the way we speak so adamantly of our own capabilities. When we honestly, how many times, look, you don't have to raise your hand. How many times have you disappointed yourself? I'm going to follow through. I'm completely committed. It can be a small thing. I will definitely call you back. And the next time you see them, they're like, why didn't you call me? And you're like, I, I have no idea. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, you know, I know. I took a blood oath <laughs> in the moment. And that's the last time I thought about it. I, I, you know, we are so faithless, so weak, so human, so frail. And yet our bold claims, bold claims. You hear that humility in Jesus' half-brother, James. When James says, don't say that you're going to go into the neighboring city and live there for a year and buy and sell and trade, make money and do everything. Just say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. It's, It's much better if you really understand your frailty. 
these men are demonstrating to us what it is to be religious and in the flesh. It's not until we see them filled with the Holy Spirit that you see a different character where they are literally willing to die, where they do sacrifice their lives. If, if you're sitting here uh, now thinking, well, in a few moments, because we're going to end right here, if you're thinking, well, Peter's going to rip out the sword, right? Uh, the way that it is written really leaves us to think that Peter was trying to force Jesus' hand. Right? Peter has literally seen Jesus raise the dead. He has literally seen the crowd come and try to take Jesus by force, and Jesus just walked through the crowd. Right? Just brushes. Uh, John tells us that when they come to arrest Jesus, Jesus essentially says, I'm God, and flattens them all to the ground with his voice. Probably Peter was like when Jesus first said, I'm going to be betrayed and crucified. And Peter said, I will not allow it to happen. And then Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Okay. Uh, Peter was even in that what we would consider a bold blaze of glory moment. He was trying to take charge and manipulate Jesus. So, so even in that, he's seemingly of the flesh, right? What does Jesus ask them? And when he says, you do not even know what spirit you are of. <laughs> uh, I've, I've felt that way many times. Make the bold claim, fail miserably, and you hear the Holy Spirit saying, so are you, are you ready to do it my way? Are, are you ready to rely upon me? Or Oh, no, okay, it's you. Go ahead, then. I'll watch. I'll say, I'll watch. So much better when that brokenness and that true submission comes. You know, the same way we see these men change. Look for that within yourself. Amen.